You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. It is the future, mysteriously spreading across an unsuspecting city. Machines trained to serve humans are turning against them. What do you got, Jerry? Model 912, cut up two people inside the house. I'm going in. Hmm, you're going in. We can send a disarm robot in. It'll hit the floater, it'll hit the disarm, and any minute it's going to decide to hit the kid. An ingenious conspiracy has begun. And someone has to stop the madman who started it all. We've got a non-standard chip here. You can turn any domestic computer into a killing machine. Working late at night all by yourself. I just had a few things to finish up. No, no big I deal. Insist. Let me help you. No Bugs detected. Got a lot of bugs, Jackie. I thought it was Queen. Luther really wants to keep track of you. Why's that, Jackie? This is a bad guy. He's killed five so far. I want him. I'm telling you, I can't go out there. I can't go out! What does it take to get through to you? He sees everything. He knows everything that's going on in here. that has your name on it. This isn't a runaway. This is murder. We're never going to make it through this one. Runaway. Tom Selleck. Cynthia Rhodes. Gene Simmons. Runaway. I start pictures. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Carol Borden. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Also back in the booth is Mr. Josh Stewart. I watch, I look, I listen. We are looking at the 1984 film from writer-director Michael Crichton, Runaway. It's the tale of Jack Ramsey, played by Tom Selleck, a member of the Runaway Unit, who takes care of errant robots in a futuristic world. He's a single dad with a son and a robot at home and a new partner on his team, Karen Thompson, played by Cynthia Rhodes. He's put on a case which leads him to the dastardly Luther, played by our old friend Gene Simmons. We will be spoiling the heck out of Runaway, so if you haven't seen this movie, I advise that you check it out and come back. We will still be here. So, Josh, when was the first time you saw Runaway, and what did you think? You know, I don't know if I can even pinpoint an exact time I saw it. I was born a little bit after it came out. I'm a youngin'. 
got getting less so by the day. <laughs> but uh, I remember it being kind of ever-present in my childhood. It felt like it was on TV all the time in the 90s, and my parents both really, really loved it. So it was probably something I saw as early as, like, maybe 93 or 94. It felt like it was always there. It was in constant rotation with uh, stuff like Remo Williams, which is another one that uh, has a very similar major <laughs> set piece, actually. How about you, Carol? Like Josh says, it seems like it was always there. It's always been and always will be. But I've I've been fond of it for a long, long time, and I'm so pleased to discuss it with you guys today. Yeah, this movie is like cinematic wallpaper. It has just always been on in the background. I was around when it came out in 84. I think I was 12. I don't think I saw this at the theater. I think for sure I saw it either as a VHS rental or just a cable staple. This is one of those movies where there's like a little bit of violence here and there. There's not a whole lot of gore. There's well, there's a little bit of nudity in a couple parts, but I think you can cut around it pretty easily. I want to say that this might have been one of those like TBS, TNT type movies as well, because it just feels like it would play well on cable so readily. Which is weird because it's a movie that now it has content that even though there's not a lot of it, it was an early PG-13 and it probably would get an R if they didn't cut out at least some of the nudity now. Yeah, and the nudity just seems a little gratuitous. I mean, it's not like boobs in our face kind of thing, but it's just like, okay, she could be wearing a bra or a shirt, but she's not. Yeah, it's kind of just there. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's weird too because it seems like pause for boobs, now continue. Pause for gams. Now continue. Yeah, the movie did not have gender politics on its mind, I don't think. Not like policing politics either, because like we see her boobs when she's getting scanned. Like she's getting strip searched, and they're like, oh, you know, this is a good chance to show us Christy Alley's boobs. (laughs) Do they show boobs or just like back or side boob? I just recently watched it, and I could swear I got a knife full of boob. I don't remember seeing it this time, but everything's blurring together because I also, getting prepared, I watch Michael Crichton's Looker, and that's another one that's a straight PG and opens just full-on nudity. All the PG nudity is blurring together in my head right now, and I can't remember who had what. I remember the spiders. Like, that's the spiders and his vertigo. Like, that's really what this movie is about. So here's how dumb I am. I'm a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, and it didn't dawn on me until preparing for this episode that he is Scott Jeffries. He is our Scotty in this, and that there are even moments where Luther is running up some stairs and Ramsey comes out and he looks down the staircase. And I'm surprised Crichton didn't do that, like, zoom in, pull back kind of thing that we saw with uh, Jimmy Stewart. And when he gets up to the roof, I thought again, like, oh, okay, this is he's going to throw this woman off the roof, but she's actually still there or whatever. And, yeah, it was just very strange to me. And they, they don't do a, necessarily that good of a job setting it up because we don't actually get to see the incident that set him off we hear about it so it's that old rule of screenwriting which i think so many screenwriters really love which is tell don't show a few years back jack was chasing this guy bad guy this guy ran into a building that was under construction jack freaked out started sweating couldn't follow him guy got away so the guy got away yeah well later that night that same guy killed six people a family up in Ridgemont. 
But that isn't Jack's fault. Yeah, I know. He can't blame himself for that. Things like that happen. Yeah, well, he does. It's always on his mind. The guy that got away, that Jack let get away. He never wants to let anything or anybody get away from him ever again. Is that why he's a robot expert? <laughs> well, I think he feels a lot safer doing this work. If you miss just them dropping a few lines about it near the beginning of the movie, you wouldn't even know he had that fear of heights because it doesn't really come up a whole lot other than, you know, dialogue and passing here and there. He acts very uncomfortable when he's in the helicopter. He acts pretty uncomfortable when they get to the construction site where there's a construction robot going crazy. But luckily, he's got a new partner and she can take care of it. And it's it's one of those things, again, with screenwriting where it's just like, okay, here's the new partner. Show her the ropes. And now she gets to be our eyes and ears and have everything explained to her. Luckily, she's not incredibly stupid she doesn't have to have everything explained to her and i like that this movie just has little sci-fi elements it's not crazy sci-fi and it's basically like what if we had helper robots and that's really the most sci-fi thing of this entire movie that's why i don't mind that we don't see the his origin story around the vertigo because it's just an excuse to set up the set piece at the end and to bring to go in, but I'm much more interested in all the things that are happening in this movie with the clunky robots and the acid injection and the smart bullets and stuff, and far more interested in that than what I think would be a pretty pat, oh, uh, he had a terrible, I mean, basically they're saying, oh, he had a terrible thing happen in his past, and now it'll show up later for the set piece. As a writer person, I, I'm fine with that. I, I like this business more than I think I would have liked that other bit of screenwriting business. I'm just surprised that it wasn't a flashback someplace or that we found out somehow, and this is like the Spider-Man 3 resolution, that we find out that Luther was actually behind that guy who went on a kill-crazy rampage that Ramsey couldn't stop. <laughs> well, it would be yeah. now. Because you know, everything has to, to be explained now, and they're like, oh, you understand this form of this convention, let's get to the robots. It's a very straightforward story, you know, with all the things that are factored in. There's not really a lot of twists and turns. It's just pretty much a straight pursuit in learning who this guy is. They seem more interested in showing you the way technology is integrated into the culture without making it the point of the movie, except for these crazy robots. Even that turn towards the end, and I know we're jumping all over the place when we're talking about this, this is a detective story insofar as these things are happening, these robots are going crazy, and it's interesting that the first few times that the robots go crazy, they actually seem to have absolutely nothing to do with the main detective story. Like Once we get there, it's like, oh, robots go crazy all the time. It's so easy to mistake an agricultural drone that goes nuts or a loader lifter that goes nuts with this house bot that goes crazy and stabs two women and almost shoots a, what, a 10-month-old or a two-year-old that's in the house. Seeing the first situation in the movie is kind of important because when you think about it, the first thing you think is that this... This is a, you know, a cop who's not a regular cop. He's a robot cop, essentially, which is not to be confused with a robo cop, which works the other way around. So it, it kind of legitimizes this idea that on paper sounds kind of ridiculous. But if you show us that it's it's sort of a, 
a thing that is very necessary in this version of society right off the bat, then it just seems like, you know, that that's a routine day for him. And usually it doesn't, uh, doesn't get as deep as it gets for him. So we've got that story going on. And once it turns into more of the detective story, once he finds out that there is something more to one of those cases, then it plays out pretty straightforward, even to the point of, you know, we talk about how Ramsey eventually finds out that it's this guy, Luther, the Gene Simmons character. And sometimes he finds out a little too quickly, and we'll talk about that. But then eventually the hunter becomes the hunted. And it was funny because I've been watching a lot of 80s uh, police detective movies. Uh, last night I watched The Hard Way with uh, James Woods and Michael J. Fox. And, yep, they're going after the party crasher throughout so much of this movie. And then at one point the party crasher turns it around and says, now I'm going after you. And does steals the girlfriend, steals Annabella Sciorra, takes her up to a high place. And I was just like, oh, this is almost exactly beat for beat with what I'm talking about tomorrow night with Runaway, but instead of the girlfriend, it's the kid this time, because there was no kid in the heart. Well, yeah, I guess there was a kid in the hard way, but we didn't give a shit about her. I think it's smart that Crichton is able to use those tropes in this futuristic society that he's setting up, and the robots just kind of enter into it at interesting points. Now, yeah. Did you initially think the robot in the office that was menacing everyone by shocking them was one of Luther's robots. And then it turns out that it's not. I kind of thought that it might've been, but then I was like, what would have been its end game? Because Kirstie Alley, who is Luther's girlfriend in this has to get out of that office because she's the one that he forces into stealing the chips and the, um, basically the blueprints for lack of a better term. When I was watching it, I wasn't, positive initially that it wasn't one of Luther's robots. And then it became clear that it wasn't because like you say, it would be a weird plan unless, unless Crate decided to make it an overly complicated plot. Just goes back to Josh's point that this, that robots are so prevalent in society and there are enough of them that are kind of janky because that's how society works, that they go on the fritz. Yeah. I kept looking for a much bigger picture and I was like, Okay, that agricultural robot, was that something? Was the one at the work site, was Luther already there? Since Is that the same work site that we go back to at the end? Yes, yeah, see, I'm so glad they weren't. I And I think it sort of reflects my feelings about current society. Like, I am totally willing to accept villains that are, that are bumblefucks now. <laughs> In a way, maybe even 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh this needs to be a tighter plot or whatever. And now I'm like, no, no, janky things everywhere. Janky villains, bumblefuckery is, is prevalent. So. Yeah, it turns <laughs> out the, the bolder they are, the dumber they tend to be. Nobody likes me. It can only be my personality, that's all. I like that we have these, what they call floaters, which are basically our drones that we have today. And they're constantly like, send in a floater with a camera. <laughs> always seems wrong to me and that they can be controlled via um, eye blinks. I thought that was very clever of Luther to have the uh, drone on the ceiling that he's able to control that way. Yeah. It's an unfortunate name. <laughs> I'm glad that we, uh, we, we called them drones. Cause just imagine somebody saying, Oh, there's a floater behind you. Oh, flush it down. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one thinking that. That bastard left a floater. Somebody flush it down. What if you blinked accidentally is what I was thinking of, but he doesn't seem like someone, again, who thinks very far ahead. 
and doesn't care if other people get gassed. So, yeah, he signs it up with his blink, and, and if innocent people get gassed at the wrong time, oh well. Yep, collateral damage. That's always something that I appreciate about Gene Simmons as bad guys, is that he just gives no fucks about anybody other than himself. Yeah, all his characters are all in on not giving a shit about anything. And I felt pretty bad that the Marvin character, Stan Shaw, that he never really gets to go any place or do anything. He's just relegated to the office, and it's not like he gets to save anybody. I mean, he, he's a very clever guy. He's like the the great tech nerd, but, I, I mean, he's Stan Shaw. He should be out there doing stuff, and I I was just really kind of bummed. Yeah, he's compelling and likable there, but, like, to what end? But at the same time, if you're looking at, like, a real police station, that's probably exactly what your interactions with people are going to be. There's probably a lot of people you do like that never leave the building. So it is kind of realistic in that way. When you get somebody that is that compelling in a movie, you want something more out of them than just hanging around the the precinct. Yeah, it's disappointing. I assume he was having super cool adventures on his own. I would like to think that. I would like that him and I think the guy's name is Wilson. The uh, What's that guy's name? Is it Paul Michael Chan, who's the security guy at Vectortron or whatever the name of the place is? I always like when he shows up and stuff. And then I was also very happy that G.W. Bailey shows up as the police chief, which I think was like a big promotion from when he was going through police academy. <laughs> yeah, and this <laughs> this was the same year, too. I actually keep joking that all the bad things that have happened this year are my fault because I, I unlocked the seven seals. Because the first thing I did when 2020 started was I watched all seven police academy movies back to back. I'm sorry, whatever it was, it, it was probably my fault. Uh, but yeah, that guy has been all over my radar this year <laughs> because he's in almost every single one of those movies. And then I thought I was free. And then we put on Runaway and I'm like, oh, he's back again. And he's still in the station. But at least he does get to get out of the station for one part where he does the typical, what are you doing, Ramsey? You know, you're screwing up the case and all that stuff. I'm surprised he doesn't ask for his badge and his gun. Yeah, he should have called him a loose cannon. That's true. I don't see Ramsey sitting on the edge of desks. He seems to actually be able to use chairs. Listen, Chief, there's a rogue floater out there, and I'm the only one who can stop it. And it's always great to see Chris Mulkey showing up as Johnson, the uh, guy who's got runs away from his house where his wife and her sister got murdered, and then there's his 10-month-old baby inside, and he runs away rather than face the wrath of Luther. Yeah, that's a hell of a meltdown. (laughs) He's just in pure fuck-it mode. I love it. I think even worse than Luther, though, the media gets the worst rap in this entire movie. Like, they're, they are kind of stupid as far as like the cameraman actually going into this uh, house where there's a, a robot with a gun and getting shot, rightly so. But then, you know, even later on when they're at the hotel where the, uh, the one floater gassed the entire room, they're right there with their microphones and, Tom Selleck's face, and it's just like, hey, you know, you, you guys need to back off a little bit. Yeah, I'm in, in straight to you know him as the good cop who just straight drops an f bomb on on TV on live TV, which is actually like a plot element that comes back later when his his precocious little son scolds him for it directly. <laughs> the being the kind of person I am, I actually had to think about what he said that would make his son scold him, and like, what did he say? I don't remember. I don't remember. 
yeah, he was like, oh, you said some bad words. I was like, really? He did? I had to go back and rewind the scene and watch it. I was like, oh, okay. It only registered with me because it was one of those where I was like, wait a minute, this is a PG-13 movie. Yeah, this is 1984. There's your one fuck. You get one. Well, it was yeah. a different time because that was the year they created the PG-13. You got full frontal nudity in The Woman in Red that year, I think. They were still figuring it out. Yeah, I was just talking about The Last Starfighter recently, and that was, yeah, that was the summer. That was the summer with uh, Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and just uh, people going crazy about the level of violence in these PG films. Not the level of nudity, though, surprisingly. And that's the thing that they going back to these PG-13 movies that they pushed a whole lot more than the violence, honestly, that they would never get away with now. And you'd probably get away with a lot of that violence of the PG-13 to this point. I can't remember how many shits you get. I think you get one fuck. I'm not sure how many shits. And then I don't know if there's like a point system as far as like, you know, if you can have too many shits that you can't use a fuck or how that goes. I think we all know that it just kind of really depends on how much they like the movie and want to play ball. <laughs> Probably who they get. But if there were regulations, it would be much nicer. Oh, yeah, that's true. I've seen this film is not yet rated. So. True. Now, if this movie had had the courage to actually have Stan Shaw be the love interest and out saving Ramsey instead of Cynthia Rhodes, then that's no shits. Change of pace. I also wonder if they felt like they were being... Um, progressive by having Stan Shaw be the guy who stayed back at the station and be the smarty pants as opposed to the guy who ran around and did things. I mean, obviously the, the main hero would have to be a white protagonist dude because it's that, it's that kind of movie. I, I can see them thinking, you know, it'll be cool because he's using his brain and he's, you know, figuring things out and he's not just out fighting. And he doesn't get killed. And, and that was the other thing I was thinking. Like, he has to stay in the station or he gets killed. So stick him <laughs> in the station. The one really interesting thing about this movie for me, and and I have been picking on it a little, though I do really like this movie. I always found it strange because what they played up in the trailers and what you remember from the movie, other than the robot spiders, is the idea of these bullets that Luther has where he can, I guess it's figure out somebody's heat signature and then shoot a bullet that is actually more like a guided missile. And it's supposed to key in on your individual heat signature. And I don't know the science as far as do people have individual heat signatures or not, but you would think that suddenly the movie would just stop and become an entirely different movie that is dedicated to the idea of like, well, these chips are interesting that can make robots go crazy, but this weapon is really fucking cool. And he could kill the president or take out the head of whatever. And just, I thought for sure this whole movie was just going to spin on a dime, but instead they're just like, yeah, he's got these things. Okay, cool. And, they kind of drop it after about 10 minutes. More about Gene Simmons' love gun? Yes. Yes, I would. I thought it was kind of almost intentional, though, in the way that it, the movie, like I said, it kind of goes out of its way to have technology advanced, but it doesn't necessarily focus on a lot of that technology. It's just one of mm -hmm. his toys to him. Whereas yeah, in any other movie, it would be, this movie is about a gun and the people who are hunting it. Yeah, it's like establishing the futureness of it and then being trying to tell a, a more mundane cop story around the, the robots and 
the smart bullets and the crazy gun. Wasn't it like Beverly Hills Cop 2 or one of those where, hey, we've got these new cop killer bullets, or maybe it was Lethal Weapon 3. It might have been 3, where it's like, we have these new cop killer bullets, and suddenly it becomes all about, we have to stop these bullets. Now, you've all seen one of these vests stop a 357 Magnum bullet at close range, haven't you? Yeah. 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 Okay. Observe. Armor-piercing bullets? Jesus. Cop killers. Serious. Those bullets came from the gun of a suspect we arrested yesterday. The armor car guy? Yeah, they're out there on the streets. Carol, did you want to talk about the magic bullets and how they've actually been developed? I looked it up because I remembered a few years ago I had heard that DARPA, the Defense Agency Research Project people, um, were working on a smart bullet. And I was like, oh, my God, because Runaway has always been with us. I was like, oh, my God, this is like the bullets in Runaway. They're all programmable missiles and can turn corners and stuff. The, The Pentagon is working on smart bullets that are essentially missiles that are programmable to get specific targets and can turn and footage on youtube from cnn reporting on in 2015 reporting on exacto they call it like they they couldn't have a cool name they had to call it something from a you know a cheesy movies the project is codenamed exacto extreme accuracy tasked ordinance if successful Exacto would be the first ever small caliber bullet that could steer itself. So I thought for sure this was going to do that. But I like what you guys are saying as far as there's just so many tricks in Luther's bag, and this is just another one of those. I mean, those cool drones that he had that he was able to release on the highway, which to me was always the other thing that I remembered about this was that whole highway chase and the uh, drones that were coming after him. It reminded me a lot of a remote-controlled car that goes after Dirty Harry in Deadpool, I think it was. Yeah, that was that was a few years later. Yeah. The highway chase in Runaway was a lot cooler, but it wasn't as, uh, well, it wasn't shot in daytime, and it wasn't as long, I think, as the uh, Dirty Harry chase. Yeah, I haven't seen the Deadpool in a while, but that's one that gets a lot of crap, but I remember it being a lot of fun just for the kind of ridiculousness of it all. Oh, it's totally crazy, especially using, like, I think a harpoon gun at the end to kill the bad guy. Yeah, oh yeah. And Jim Carrey uh, lip-syncing to uh, Welcome to the Jungle. That movie, I think, deserves another look as just the bonkers entry in the Dirty Harry franchise. What a way to go out. I was laughing when they go to find Johnson and he's in room 404. I was kind of really hoping that he actually wouldn't be in the room, but that's just me as a web developer. But I have to say, there are moments in here where I actually had to rewind the movie a few times and go, wait, how did they know this? Like when... They figure out that Johnson's at that hotel, or they figure out like something about Luther. And there are a lot of moments where it's just not there. And I, I even read the script for this, and I was like, okay, maybe there's some pieces that are missing. But there's really nothing that's missing. The script is actually very faithful, other than a couple times Crichton would screw up and like change like ages or something like he changed the one of the reasons why i screwed up the age of the baby in the house is because he changes the age from 10 months to two years to three years within like just a couple pages worth of material that that's a long standoff 
Yeah, it's a good thing he wasn't a professional writer or anything, or somebody would have caught him on that. But yeah, there were moments where I was just thinking, wait, how do they know this? And I wasn't that upset. I wasn't thinking, wait, there's no way that they don't know X, Y, or Z. They just kind of figure things out. And also, we don't have the moment of, wait a second, this is this, and this is this. Like, they catch on pretty quickly. And I think after I did rewatch it, when they find Johnson at the hotel, it's, oh, yeah, our informant told us this. And then they we see him on the street, and he's just like, yeah, he's up in room 404. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. That was good. But it took me a little bit to get some of those connector scenes together. It very much just sticks with, like I think I said earlier, about the, how the movie just has a very direct forward motion. It doesn't really want to stop and deal besides, you know, little asides with like Ramsey's son, you know, for the most part, it's just focusing on how do we get to the next scene? And they don't necessarily have to tell you how they get to the next scene. You just feel like, Oh, they must be so damn good at being cops that they just figured out the next thing already. And I, I don't mind it at all. I'm happy to keep moving forward. And I, I appreciate movies that don't show us every little pretty detail. I mean, I do enjoy movies that show us every pretty detail, but I'm fine with this one just moving along. I don't need to see them, like, contacting the informant and then sending it. Like, I don't need the wire here. I I like, the, I like the, the car chase and the fight at the end, and I enjoy Gene Simmons being evil, and Tom Selleck is really selling his struggle at the end, and I'm all there for it. Yeah, if you buy in everything else, you don't have to worry about the little details. And I, I love how clunky the robots are. They didn't go for cool robots like they probably would now. They went for, like, they remind me of auto-assembly robots. Like, they're either (laughs) soldiers that are rolling around, or they they do automotive assembly. This would have been a perfect year for that, too, because I think in the 80s, right around this time, is when, you know, oh, the Japanese are going to take our jobs, and robots are going to take our jobs. They took our jobs! They took our jobs! They took your jobs! They took our jobs! I admit I thought about that a lot while I watched it this time. Like the the anxiety about the robots taking our jobs, but then most of the robots are, you know, and they have that one point about like, there's another site that's another construction site. That's all automated because there are no union problems. Then I really like that little touch. And that was another thing I found to be progressive. And I don't think it was called out in the script, that the the foreperson of the site was a woman, but I was really glad for that. Like, we were talking about how there's, like, a little, like, oh, we're being progressive. Maybe, maybe not. But I thought that was a truly progressive moment to have a foreperson, to have a woman heading the construction site rather than the typical cigar-chomping man. Yeah, there are a lot of things about the way this is set up. And, and reading into it, you see how Crichton kind of intended this world to be where it's not quite a utopia, but it's just a progressive future where this level of technology hasn't been used to, you know, necessarily harm society in any way. And people have kind of grown up a little bit, which as we know now is total bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I kept wondering how are they trying to use these robots for porn, you know, because that would have been the first thing that they did with them. Well, that has me thinking back to Looker again, but we'll get into that when we talk about Crichton's other movies. We've been talking a lot about technology, but the one thing that we haven't talked about is the use of a psychic in here, 
which GW Bailey is like, hey, go check this out, see what the psychic can tell you. When he says that, I was like, no, no, that's not right. But sure enough, there's a psychic in here, which for me throws this almost from a Crichton world into a Philip K. Dick world, where we are talking about Minority Report, we're talking about all of the just kind of mutant, futuristic type things that Philip K. Dick loved to play with. And I, I was very impressed that we had that in here. I almost wish they explored it a little bit more, but again, it's just a little flavor of things that could be its own movie. It's almost like when we talked about Zardoz, like every little thing in Zardoz could be blown out into its own thing. It's almost too many ideas, but I think that they balance this pretty well. I want you to talk to one of our psychics. Chief, Linda's in the building working on that missing kid case. I'm going to send her up here to give you a reading. Come on, Chief. Just do it, Ramsey. Yeah, and this was two years prior to Maximum Overdrive, so I'm glad that the robots didn't go crazy because of some sort of outer space thing. I'm glad that the robots didn't go crazy like a Westworld. They were faulty here and there, but, you know, for the one robot that goes nuts chopping down plants at the beginning, you know, there's three or four others that are doing their job and not bothering anybody. I know it just was faulty, but I loved how they shot it from above so you could see how it had gone through the cornfield, and it really looked like it was making a run for it. That was nice. And honestly, I could see that on the news now. They'd be like, agricultural robot goes crazy, and then we'd all watch the clip of it making a run for it. Yeah, but now it would be off somebody's like cell phone footage, and people be yelling yeah. at it. And <laughs> yeah, but the whole time this agricultural robot's going nuts, there's a guy in the back going, "World Star, World Star." That was one interesting thing in the script that they changed was when they're flying to the place. Rather than them just opening up the door or the pilot opening the door so they can see out and see how far they are or close to the field. In the script, he does something so that the sides of the helicopter become transparent. So it was like a little bit more futuristic. And I'm actually glad that they didn't do that because I think the the less futuristic that we get and the less attention that is being paid to this stuff, to both of your points throughout this entire discussion, the easier it is to swallow. And that is just like... Yeah, things are a little different. This is a world where these things are happening rather than what they are. And I won't be surprised in a few years if we do have things like a Lois or whatever. I mean, she's basically uh, like a e-home. You know, it's like what Google has been uh, promoting or what a uh, Amazon with Alexis, but it's just a little bit more robust. And just like Alexis or Google, she will answer when she's not supposed to, and you doesn't realize when you're talking to her or not. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Good night, ma'am. Now I'm having this terrible vision of they stick an Alexa on top of one of those security robots for malls. Just like, oh, well, we'll just integrate it. It's basically the same thing. And then, yeah, they go on the fritz, and next thing you know, we need someone like Tom Selleck to come over and make your robot behave. Wayward mall robot, you got to call Kelly Maroney. That's your only option. Thank you. Have a nice day. I'm trying to remember when Heart Beeps was. Do you guys remember that one? Oh, oh. God, yeah. That's when I, I had think that was 81 or something. Brian made us watch that for Drive-In Mob, I think, like a year ago. That was hard going for me. I watched that movie 
so many times when I was young, and I loved the music. I loved so much about that, and I don't know if I could go back and watch it now, because I think at some point I was like, that movie I liked was really bad. I have really positive feelings about it, but everyone tells me that it's utterly dreadful, so one of these days I'm going to have to go back and, and see for myself. Because usually I'll just enjoy something dreadful <laughs> and be fine with it. You might well like it. Like It's not like it's inherently awful. There, there are some things that are inherently awful, but we're, it's just the, a kind of bad that I'm sensitive to. And especially that one's a weird one, just because it's it's an Andy Kaufman movie, but like that's the last thing you expected from Andy Kaufman. It's interesting. The spider robots are really cool, and again, used sparingly, uh, used as murder weapons, which I enjoyed. And I didn't necessarily get how they murdered people at first until... Uh, Luther is like, oh yeah, they spray acid or inject acid or whatever, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's also kind of awful. Like I, when you <laughs> talked about that, there weren't wasn't much gore. I feel like if they had been gory murders, it probably wouldn't have been as disquieting to me as they run up your body and, and stick a needle in your head. Like that was yeah. it gives me like the jibblies. But it, yeah, it would have been so easy to just be like, well, they're evil spiders, but. Uh, what they do is they explode when you get near them. <laughs> and instead, it was like, well, no, they're spiders. they got to sting you. <laughs> and it's it's real bad news. They also look like electronic parts to me. Like oh, They look like op amps to me. And I kind of liked that the designer went along with that. Did In the script, did Crichton describe them? It seems like Crichton would describe them. I don't remember other than him just saying electronic spiders. That's another thing reading into the background of the movie where he pretty much openly says, like, the technology is a big part of the movie, but, like, he didn't give a shit about any of it when they were filming it. <laughs> he just let the second unit do whatever they were going to do. I mean, he really didn't describe the robots. He didn't describe Lois. Even in the script, those early phone calls from Lois weren't in there. And I liked how they set that up uh, in the movie, in the final version, where he's talking to her on the phone. And then his new partner imagines that he's got a wife at home, only to find out that he's got a robot at home instead. And fortunately, he's not like, you know, Lars and the Real Girl or something, where he's like having sex with his robot. Yeah, we're not in a, a her situation here. Yeah, Lars would be interesting to me in that case, but I, I wouldn't need her to happen in this in this context. I had to laugh so hard when they showed Chris Mulkey's body and he's being sniffed by this sniffer robot. <laughs> Uh, and they're like looking for particles and stuff. It's like modern CSI in this. He looked exactly like Nunu from the Teletubbies, who was like their cleanup robot. Ooh, naughty Nunu. He's tidied up the extra piece of tubby toast. Naughty Nunu! Maybe that's actually the post apocalyptic future of Runaway, where. All of regular humanity is gone as children have emerged with the sun, but some of the technological devices still remain. <laughs> yeah, maybe Luther could get like a TV set installed in his stomach. We do hear a lot about how much he likes TV. Yeah, and he taps into the uh, closed circuit TVs in the police station. That was nice, though he's, he only has video and not sound. I'm surprised he didn't somehow wire something up for sound in there, but he's... Clever to a point, but then he's dumb enough to be taken down, and I 
I don't disbelieve when he's taken down. I mean, and he's really taken down by his hubris because it's that whole, hey, Ramsey, I've got spider robots at the bottom of the elevator and they will kill whoever comes out. And then fortunately, his partner shows up just at the right time and is able to save his son. And then it ends up that Luther gets killed by his own robots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's very arrogant. But he never really has a plan. It seems like he's kind of just doing things on the fly. But since he's so arrogant, he's just used to everything working out however he hopes it'll work out. Yeah, he's got a helicopter on the roof of the one building. He had the drone or the floater set up to respond to his commands in case something went wrong with the gun sale, apparently. So he he has some things at the ready. But then other things, yeah, he's just like, I don't care. He's, he's very chaotic. I mean, he, he's, he's not necessarily as anarchistic as, say, the Joker, but there are a lot of times where it does feel like he's just throwing caution to the wind. Yeah, he's prepared, but he's not planning. He, and he doesn't seem to have an overarching plan beyond, I'm going to sell these things to people. He is discreet. He'll, he, he is organized around each discreet part. Well, it's not even part, but each discreet plan. So I'm meeting at the hotel and I'll have the floater. Oh, I'm going to rig the whole building with spiders, and then, haha, his son gets killed, or he gets killed, haha. Once they figure out who Luther is, I mean, one of the first things we hear about him is that he's been caught at least, what, twice before. So it's not like he's some sort of infallible Moriarty type guy. Yeah, it is yeah, funny he's... to this movie now, and, and in the past it seemed less, for lack of a better word, realistic, and now it's like, no, no, this is how people are, yeah. <laughs> Never learn. <laughs> uh-huh. Just keep going and going, thinking that eventually you'll outsmart him. And then they hit a wall, and they get attacked by their own robot spiders. That's the way it usually ends. And I want to say this was the same year as the Terminator. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Because we have that same thing at the end of this that we would see in the Terminator, and then it just kind of became a staple for a long time, which was... The bad guy's dead. No, wait, he's alive. Oh, wait, no, he's actually dead. So, like, when Luther, like, kind of grabs Ramsey by the arm and screams or hisses at him. It's a big horror movie moment. Yeah, he straight hisses at him. And I was like, oh, shit. And then he just, no, he's dead. But also, it, as far as, like, sort of the traditional action movie ending, like, so many of those movies end at, like, big abandoned work sites of some type. And this is just another one of the, at least this one has a good reason as to why there isn't anybody there. But yeah, so many of them, you know, there's a, a foundry or a factory or, or something where everybody just leaves. At least in like Terminator 2, you see everyone shutting down and getting the hell out of there. But so many of these movies, they just start fighting in a big work site for no reason. <laughs> As they're using the elevator uh, to go up and down in this workstation, I just kept thinking, see you at the party, Richter. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I have no interview for this episode. I actually was in contact with Tom Selleck's people and got close, got the whole, like, can you provide interview questions beforehand? And then I was like, yep, I can send those along. Just let me know. Never heard anything back. And kept saying, yeah, it'd be great. You know, he's a fellow Detroiter. I've always wanted to, you know, have Mr. Selleck on the show. Now nah, then finally got the, no, we're, we're going to pass at this time. Maybe when I do quickly down under, he'll come on the show. Let's go ahead and take a break. And we'll be right back after these brief messages. To many film fans, This is seen as a classic film quote. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This one is too. You talking to me? Over at Sea Here, however, we're very fond of this one. How many times do I have to tell you? No pizza for you, Joey. 
not to mention this one. Grease is the best, man. What makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie, and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, the Gigi Allen story, Ishtar, and Yellow Submarine. As well as roundtable film talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music and you love films, join us at C Here. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. <laughs> this episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Tour Books. When George Romero passed away in 2017, New York Times bestselling author Daniel Krauss finished Romero's final zombie tale. Set in the present day, The Living Dead is an entirely new tale, the story of the zombie plague as George A. Romero wanted to tell it. Read The Living Dead by George A. Romero and Daniel Krauss on sale now wherever books are sold. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. We are back, and we are talking about Runaway. And yeah, this is actually the second time that we've talked about a Michael Crichton film where it is just one of these written and directed by, not based on his own book. And I have to say, I think I like Looker more, but 
I like both of these films. And I'm, I kept thinking maybe he had gone back and adapted this for something else or, you know, like made a short story out of it. But even on Michael Creighton's website, there's just barely anything about this movie. It's almost like he just kind of made it and forgot about it. Yeah, and that's that's weird because if you look in like I'm sure you of all people looked into Looker, but anybody who hasn't like he's not really happy with Looker at all. You know, this one he seemed pretty pretty well appreciative of his final product even if it wasn't a great success. I think it went the way it was supposed to go. And Looker, you know, ended up being a completely different genre than what it was supposed to be. But yeah, I also agree that I think Looker is as a final experience a way more fascinating really cool movie i really really enjoyed that and i'd never seen that until just now i saw looker when i was too young to see it and i remember very little about it except for there was that with gun that gun that sort of froze people's sense of time and they forgot things and it was a a light but there's not so much i can offer other than i found it very (laughs) funny as a child I could see myself, had I seen Runaway at a younger age, probably being terrified of those mechanical spiders. I did see it at a younger age, and I was like, is that, re- that going to happen? <laughs> Didn't happen, so we're good. They are still the things of my nightmares rather than uh, realistic stuff. And I'm definitely glad nobody figured out that time-slowing gun. We're just stuck with the regular ones, and I'm sure Tom Selleck's very happy about that. Like, what I wasn't expecting out of Looker watching it with fresh eyes was... There are a lot of things in that that I, I feel kind of bled into later stuff, like They Live and uh, in The Running Man. There's a lot of the similar ideas going on there. So if you're into that sort of media conspiracy nonsense, it's really fun. Okay, I'm going to look at it again. It's funny knowing how big Christie Alley got as an actress that she's in the movie so small. I don't think it was that many years after this that she would go on to be in Cheers. And and this was after Star Trek, was it not? Yeah, Star Trek 2 was uh, 80, 82, so yeah. this was two years afterwards. And Star Trek 3 was busy beating this movie at the box office. <laughs> and yeah, it's just strange. Like She shows up so late in the movie, and she basically her whole thing is, this is Luther's girlfriend, but it's not like she's that bad you think that she's kind of a good person but then she is keeping the like a bug on her as part of her purse i guess and it just feels like she should have more to do like when i went back to my young memories of the movie i remembered her being in it a lot longer but now she's kind of just in it for a few scenes to scream and be a target like they i I feel like i remembered them doing so much more with her but it really wasn't that way. And I, and maybe it's because in the, in the nineties, whenever it, like if it aired on TV and they showed commercials, they would put her in the commercial because she was the bigger name at that point. She's definitely not a main character in it, but you would want to remember that she was because she sticks out. Well, and if, if it were a noir, which it kind of is, she would be the gun mall. And oh, absolutely. Now the, the, the roles would be reversed for the two actresses and she would have the major role, but she wasn't. She wasn't who she became yet, so... Yeah, she just really doesn't want to get killed. I found it very interesting as I was doing research on this that Crichton had... Well, he had already had, to your point, uh, Josh, he was not necessarily that happy with Hollywood a lot of the time. And he was complaining about how the Congo project was dead and that would never be made into a movie. And I'm just like, you're talking about Congo in 1984? Like... 
I can't. And he was talking about like, this isn't going to work having Rick Baker in a gorilla suit. You know, the, it, it, you can't have human eyes behind, you know, the gorillas and stuff. And I was just like, well, how the hell do you expect this to work, dude? Like once they, you know, it, it took a long time before we had the effects and sometimes I think we still don't have the effects though I liked George and Rampage I thought that was a very believable CG gorilla but you know the, even in Congo it, uh, in 95 it looked pretty shitty then that's one I haven't seen since it was new and I hear that it's not worth going back to drink. that also calls to know that it's kind of interesting to call into those kind of two different phases of Crichton's career, because in the 70s and 80s, he was just a, you know, he was a, a well-respected author for the Andromeda strain, and he made some movies sometimes, but he wasn't, you know, it, when I was growing up, after Jurassic Park, it was a whole different ball game. I mean, they were trying to, to find the next project, and I don't really feel like they ever had another project based on his work that took off like Jurassic Park, because Congo didn't nail it, uh, Sphere didn't nail it, uh, I kind of like Timeline, but that didn't nail it. But they kept trying over and over again, and they would always just put from the author of Jurassic Park. And it was like everybody forgot Westworld and everything that came before. To me, one of my favorite things that Creighton ever did was The Great Train Robbery. Yeah. That is one of my favorite films of all time. And that's one that you can go back to now. It's safe to go back to it because it is still really good. It's not one of those like, oh, I remember this being Oh, It's the Andromeda Strain. And it's one of the most atypical pieces of his work, too, because it, it is a period piece, you know, telling a story from history. There's no there's no sci-fi concepts to it. It's just really, you know, some crooks having fun. <laughs> the other one that I really like that I don't necessarily think other people do is The Thirteenth Warrior. Though I am so curious because I know that that movie changed drastically after it was shot. Um, I think that Crichton actually came back in and shot some of that. It might have been after McTiernan went to jail or just after he was off the project. I can't remember what the... Yeah, McTiernan didn't go to jail after until basic, after basic. Okay. All right. Yeah, I couldn't remember when that was. but it, So yeah, I guess it was just the studio wasn't happy and they brought in Crichton and he did some stuff to it, changed it from Eaters of the Dead to the 13th Warrior. But even as the final product, and I would be so curious to see Eaters of the Dead, but as that final product, I was still really happy with it. I, Like I said, I think I'm in the minority, but I dig that movie. Yeah, I remember it being fun. I haven't seen it in a long time. But at the same time, I could, I could watch Antonio Banderas do damn near anything. That's true. The other thing that we can't forget when it comes to Crichton is ER, and that was just such a runaway success. And that, to your point, Josh, was, I think, 94. So it was like Jurassic Park in 93 and ER in 94. So it was just like, this guy can do no wrong. And then we see stuff like Sphere, which is probably one of the worst movies I ever saw at a theater. Yeah, that's another one I haven't revisited since it came out, so I remember nothing of it. I don't remember. I, I remember the color blue. <laughs> I remember Sam Jackson eating a lot of eggs. Man, oh man. Barnes, you're going to have a real problem with me. As long as my good buddy Norman keeps cooking like this, I ain't going nowhere. It's toast and good. Bacon, better. But these eggs, oh, these eggs are fantastic. Mm. Then fast forward to the mega hit, The Spirit, where he doesn't like eggs at all. Really, really shows the 
you know, the disparity in, in Sam Jackson's abilities. He can love eggs, he can hate them. No matter what, the movie sucks. <laughs> what happens if you put eggs on toast and then cut it diagonally? I'm not going to go through and rip on all of these bad Crichton movies, but, I mean, when he was hot, he was hot. Oh, big, big time. What did you guys think of Tom Selleck as our leading man? I think he did a good job. You know, like, he, he did all the things he needed to do. Uh, I really appreciated he was willing to be as vulnerable as he was, particularly for an action hero in 1984. Like, it it wasn't the 70s anymore, you know, or the early 70s. He was, I think he gave a lot to a script that didn't necessarily require a lot from him. And I, I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, he's he's very, I think affable is probably the best term to use. Mm-hmm. He's, he's just very real. As far as performance-wise from him, I, I feel like the best moment in the movie is is just him keeping his, his partner calm while he's, you know, doing the... Mm-hmm. removing the explosive device from her. And he's just so believable at trying to be like a calm, warm presence in, in the midst of all this horrible shit going on. He's, he's so good at that. I've always just liked him as a performer and as an actor. I don't remember necessarily the whole NRA thing that happened on the Rosie O'Donnell show that much other than it was a thing. I remember seeing that as it happened, (laughs) watching my parents take sides against each other. Whatever his politics are, I don't see him out like campaigning kind of thing. And he doesn't seem to be as like, uh, you know, from my cold dead hands kind of a person. Yeah, he hasn't been troublesome. He's just, you know. He likes his guns. <laughs> He's not out there advocating for the worst things of all time, which is all I can ask right now. Although I'd never trusted him anytime he didn't have his mustache. It's just, it's hard to stomach. I'm trying to remember if he had his mustache in, was it In and Out, the Kevin Klein movie? Oh, man, that's one I haven't seen in forever, too, and I remember that being great. It is great. It is great because I remember it being great as well. And I'm just like, I'm almost afraid to go back and revisit that because I remember it being fairly progressive with its politics at the time. But now I'm like, Ooh, is that just memory playing a trick on me? Yeah. Something that can seem ahead of the game can feel really, really regressive once society has caught up and moved past it. But from what I hear, that movie still holds up. And I mean, that, that was a, a Frank Oz movie, I think. And fr- I, I feel like Frank Oz never quite got the the big credit as a director that he deserved. But most of his work was was really solid. Yeah, it was one of his movies. I, I really like that scene where Debbie Reynolds is shouting that she just wants a wedding. Like, basically, she doesn't <laughs> care who gets married as long as she gets a wedding. Always liked Frank Oz as a director. And I've been wanting to do an episode on... Bowfinger for the longest yes. time. And that's another one where I'm just like, who can I get from Bowfinger? Oh, no you would kidding. think I could get somebody. And God, Frank Oz would be a fucking dream interview. I was so excited when I, I was like, who is this lawyer? When I was watching Knives Out, I'm like, he looks so familiar. Who is yes. this lawyer? Oh, yes. I got so excited in the theater. I was like, I know that Muppet man. <laughs> yeah. When I heard his voice, I just kept thinking one soiled. I did find out something interesting about uh, Runaway, which was in Germany, it was called Runaway, uh, and I don't know how you pronounce this in German, so I'll just translate it, Spiders of Death. That's a very German title. (laughs) 
I love it. And of course, the spiders were all over that uh, poster and uh, just like coming out of the side of the building with the big stinger ready to kill Tom Selleck. So oh, it was, it's pretty sweet <laughs> art. Oh, that for the woman who got killed by the spider in the bathroom. Oh, I always felt so bad for her. Oh, she's just doing her job. I think she was also in Looker. I think she had a small role in that. So she must have been a Crichton favorite. Karen Teasdale, I believe her name is. Oh, wow. I'm looking at this German poster now. Yeah. Runaway Spinning des Todes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's... Yeah, that that movie just looks like a movie about giant spiders. But you know what? It's It's not like the American marketing did any better of a job, because all the marketing... Uh, centered around Tom Selleck holding Gene Simmons's gun. Or him holding the baby, which just so reminds me of, like, um, hard-boiled. I yeah. say. So I, uh, I asked about Selleck. I mean, I think I know, Josh, where you stand on Gene Simmons being a villain. He sucks. I, I, I hate the guy. No. <laughs> no, I can't bring myself to hate him no matter, no matter how much personal information we know about him. I find him a compelling actor, at least. And I, I, I always lament that he, he did those five, six movies, whatever, in the 80s, and then he just went back to music. But it, And this was his first non-Phantom of the Park acting role, and I, I think that his performance really is is what sells it, because you can have all this, this stuff, but if you don't have a villain that's at least interesting, then what's the point? And he's just so cold, and he, you can tell that it's a guy who thinks he's sinister and wants people to know it. And and he's so good at displaying that. And then that probably is why most of those roles that he had, except for like Trick or Treat, were villain roles, because he, he went all in on it every time. Even that short clip of him on the video answering machine, when he just looks at the camera, he carries such menace. And just that short little scene, you know. Even his mugshot, he nails it. It's so good. In your house. Why? Why would you let that man in your house? Like, he can't even stop glowering villainously <laughs> five seconds while he tries to trick you to let it, you him in to to reprogram your robots. Oh, and I loved reading about about his his onset interactions and how uh, he he more or less you know method tricked himself into to pretty much just like hating. Tom Selleck in the moment, and whenever the, the camera was off, he would always come on like, oh, I wasn't too strong, was I? <laughs> she was like, no, that's perfect. You were acting like you hated me. Good job. You're right about the mugshot, and that's another like little futuristic touch in the movie, is that it's a moving mugshot, that it's a video mugshot instead of a still. So it took me a long time before I realized, oh, he's moving in this. That's interesting. So you get to see more interaction with him, get to see how his face moves rather than it just being a still image. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such a, a, like it's a simple concept, but the way it plays out, it works so well simply because of him (laughs) and, and how you can see the mindset of this criminal who wants people to know that even when he's been caught, he's still hot shit. I'm still smarter and more villainous than all of you. And I totally buy it. It's like I said, it's it's just weird because it's such a staple movie of my youth, but it's really it's kind of what a lot of people would call like a like a hangover movie because it's it's so just digestible, but there's not a whole lot going on. But it's it's that perfect movie to just throw on in the background when you need something, you know, interesting and fun and it's not gonna give you a headache. <laughs> 
and and it has a lot of cool ideas about the future that a lot of them came true, and I love that. And, and Crichton was really good at that, at predicting where technology was going to go without really damning it. The one thing I was thinking of was that it, it almost kind of fit in that same kind of future of, like, uh, Max Headroom almost, where, you know, you're just a little bit in the future. We're, we're almost there. We're getting to that. But it hasn't happened just yet. Yeah, five minutes into the future. Wasn't that the uh, the Max Headroom line? Very close to that. Something like that. <laughs> I can't remember. It's a number. That's I'm terrible with those. It's 20. You idiot. It was definitely several minutes into the future. Next Sunday, A.D.? It's a nice, solid little movie, and I feel like nice, solid little movies deserve more appreciation than maybe they get, because they're easy to take for granted. It's an easy-to-take-for-granted movie, because like Josh says, you can watch it, and it it, um, it gets done what it's trying to get done, and it doesn't necessarily require a lot of you, but I don't need every movie to require a lot of me. Sometimes I just want cool car chases and janky robots and villainous Gene Simmons. This movie isn't going to change the world, but I would go out of my way to actually see this. Yeah, mm-hmm. if it's there, I'll, I will I will say that's the thing tonight. It's runaway night again. I will say the one thing that I don't think we really touched on was the kind of weird romance angle that I'm not really sure was necessary. I'm not sure how you feel about, about that, because early on with his partner, he wants to like take her to dinner, and... She gets kind of shaky on it, and then at the end of the movie, they have a, they, like, the last shot of the movie is them having, like, a big triumphant kiss. And I, I don't know if that was, if that was really necessary or not. Cause, like, you know, we have Robocop a few years later where the, we have a female lead who's never a romantic interest for obvious reasons. And, but that was kind of what I always liked about that character. Boiling her down to that at the end of the movie felt kind of weird to me. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, I think it was an attempt to have this emotional arc for him, and that's never good if you have another character involved because you want them both to have some kind of emotional arc, and his emotional arc is he's recovering from this trauma and the death of his wife, and then somehow this has all healed him. But I'm like, if he has a fear of heights, he's still going to have a fear of heights. And Oh, uh, yeah, the, the therapy he's going to need after the end of this movie. <laughs> astonishing, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and plastic son. surgery. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. Well, he'll just have to call up uh, <laughs> uh, Albert Finney. <laughs> Both Looker and Runaway end almost exactly the same way, where the credits come on screen as our hero falls in love with the female lead in the last minutes of the, the last moments of the movie. Like Crichton really liked that, I guess. Yeah, well, and the thing is, is if they hadn't kissed for a good three minutes with the sparks flying and his face lacerated and filled with black goo, I think it wouldn't have stuck out that it's a little bit weird. Yeah, it was a very inopportune moment. You talked about how he was inviting her to dinner, but then he was like, no, at my house, and this is what partners do. You know, we have dinner with each other. Like, this is not a man-woman thing. This is two police officers who are partners. And then, yeah, she gets bent out of shape because it's like, oh, I thought there was something more to this, which was kind of strange. And then, yeah, the rest of the movie kind of feels like they're – taking her out of the police. Like they literally take her out of uniform after she gets shot in the arm. When she shows up again, she's in a dress. So we're like feminizing her. She was in pants before she's in a dress now. And then she's 
fucking wearing high heels to go to that construction site and climbing up the the elevator with the kid to <laughs> to get away from the the spiders. I you want to look good for the spiders. It, it did prevent them from getting at her ankles right away, though. They were tactical heels. <laughs> He's wearing those 80s stilettos that were taller than the spiders. But yeah, that end credit sequence is remarkable, just in that it is so unusual, where it is just like, love theme from Runaway comes up on the the, <laughs> the soundtrack. And yeah, it's, that's, yeah that's the, the slow air, motion sparks. <laughs> That's just that's that's how it were how it was back then. And I think they felt like it was another little progressive moment where, like, you point out all these things with, like, oh, and they feminize her, they take her out of the police, they put her in high heels, that she sort of disappears from the movie, except to save his kid, which was all much earlier. But then, like, she's the one asking him out, and she's the one making her desires plain. So, haha, see, it's progressive. Yeah, to to a point, but man, it felt weird. <laughs> Yeah, it is weird. It is weird. Like so many other things in this movie where I'm like, I'm happy to go along with you. And then they're in love. Oh, wow, they're kissing. It was, it was almost like they, they were like, Oh shit, we forgot to put this in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's how it feels. Well, it is really weird. We just talked about Commando on the show, which has almost the exact same ending as far as like, now we have the dad with the daughter and the wife has died. And now there's this new woman. And basically now we are the family unit. We have come together at the end though in this movie, it's really strange how the little boy is not in that shot at the end. Thank goodness, because it's a, it gets a little rough there with them kissing for so long. And it's just like, okay, well, where's the son? But you know that he's around, you know that the family has now become the nuclear unit again, but it is so strange that that's like talking about commando and then this movie, like right in a row. And it's just like, okay, these end almost the exact same way. Mm -hmm. Straight to, you know, cut to awesome eighties music as the credits come up. (laughs) (laughs) Do you leave anything for us? Just spiders. The one thing we didn't talk about that I really, that stuck out to me also is the score. Cause it was, you know, the incomparable Jerry Goldsmith uh, doing his, I, I think it was his first all electronic score. It, I mean, it's really cool. It's really, really eighties, but you also hear a lot of similarity to what he put particularly into like first blood part two. You, you hear a lot of what he was kind of working on there. And I, I really have a soft spot for, for that music. No, I always love Goldsmith, no matter what he's doing. And he was one composer where I, I could hear similarities between some of his themes, but it wasn't he never that anything. noticeable. Exactly. It never felt like this is a lift of one thing to another. And I just always appreciated that about him and that he was also, yeah, looking for new ways to express himself. So that's interesting. I did not know that this was his first fully electronic score. Yeah, and that was him doing that late in his career too, because I mean, he was, you know, he was in his fifties when when he scored this. Like, he wasn't a young musician, and here he is trying out something that for him is pretty much completely unheard of. And this is years after stuff like, you know, like like God, the Patton score that alone is is a whole lifetime's worth of work. It's another great Jerry Goldsmith score. I mean, pretty much any time we bring him up on the show, it's always just like great score does its job. There's never been a point where I went, oh, that was Goldsmith? Well, that's weird. <laughs> like, the only time I ever said, that's Morricone, is when he did the thing, and he sounded yeah. exactly like John Carpenter. He was, yeah, he nailed the Carpenter sound. And, you know, God rest him. I'm, I'm, I feel, as a total aside, I feel very lucky that, you know, I was, I was working 
as a projectionist before the world shut down. And I'm lucky that the week before everything shut down, the last movie I got to watch on the big screen was the thing because like, what if it hadn't been, <laughs> Wow! What if, what if it had been, had been uh bloodshot. <laughs> I'm glad that I went out with the thing. At least if we never get movie theaters back, you know what my last movie was, Josh, what was your last movie? Wait, bloodshot. it was bloodshot. Oh no. Oh, yes. it, it still could have been worse. There was a really bad Jesus movie out that weekend too. I went out on Bloodshot. At least you got to say you went out on the thing. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You have crash-landed on a barren planet. Millions of miles from home. Your means of transportation and communication are destroyed. You are stranded. You are defenseless. And you are not alone. Enemy Mine, rated PG-13. Starts Friday at a selected theater near you. That's right, we will be back next week with a look at Enemy Mine. I hope people have as much fun listening to that as I did putting it together. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Carol and Josh. So, Josh, what has been keeping you busy these days? You know, absolutely nothing. Uh, like I said, I was, I was a projectionist, so I'm pretty much uh, just waiting right now. I was supposed to be transferring to the Houston area to run the projection department for a theater up there. And I don't know if that's ever happening at a reasonable rate. So I uh, luckily at the same time went back to school. So I'm just studying my ass away in my mid or in my early thirties, because uh, luckily that's, that's something we can do online. So it's keeping me busy. Otherwise I have been watching more movies this year than I probably have any other year. And it's been a very even mix of classics that I've never seen before and horrible garbage. And I do log every single thing I watch on Letterboxd, which I think is just under my name. But Letterboxd is like the thing that, that I can use to pinpoint what's going on this year and where I was at what time, <laughs> just based on what movie I've watched around it. Uh, last week, I I involuntarily, or I voluntarily watched some of The Mask at 3 in the morning. It is that bad. Don't do it. If anybody has any interest in following me anywhere, that's the place to do it. Otherwise, I'm just on Facebook, and I rarely use my Twitter, so I won't even mention that. But, yeah, Letterboxd is a, is a fun place for me to uh, write weird essays about my divorce after I watch Possession for the third time. <laughs> Carol, how is life in the cultural gutter? Uh, life in the cultural gutter is pretty good. We have a lot of great essays. I'm not sure what will be up next week. Right now we have a piece on Shochiku science fiction films by Keith Allison. I just wrote a piece about Birds of Prey and the fabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Um, And you can read all the things we write on movies and horror and comics and Bollywood films and science fiction at www.culturalgutter.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cultural Gutter. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Oh,
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.